The contents of this podcast reflect the views and opinions of the host and do not constitute medical advice. Hello, and welcome back to Long COVID MD. I'm your host, Dr. Zeest Khan, a licensed and board certified physician navigating recovery from Long COVID. Recently, there was a U.S. Senate committee hearing on long COVID. Several brave patients and scientists advocated in front of senators for continued and improved research funding so that we can find treatments and ultimately a cure to long COVID. Today, I'm going to tell you all about it. I'm going to explain what this Senate committee is, who is on it, who testified, what was said, and I'm going to provide some context. So we're going to learn together here. We're going to get up to date and up to speed. Now, not all of us can be long COVID political advocates, but all of us are affected by legislation that is or is not passed by Congress. So this is important information. Buckle in, get cozy, and let's get started. The long COVID hearing that was held on January 18th of this year was called by Senator Bernie Sanders from Vermont, who is the chair of the Senate HELP Committee. The HELP Committee is an acronym that stands for Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions. This Senate committee hears all proposed legislation that deals with, among other things, biomedical research and development, uh, legislation that pertains to individuals with disabilities, labor standards and labor statistics, occupational safety and health, and public health. The hearing was called Addressing Long COVID, Advancing Research and Improving Patient Care. Now, what is a U.S. Senate committee? These committees guide the Senate at large on topics under their jurisdiction. So they're very influential in passing legislation, although they don't pass legislation themselves. They make recommendations to the Congress at large. The HELP Committee is composed of 21 senators split pretty closely down the middle in party alignment and includes two senators who are physicians, Bill Cassidy from Louisiana and Roger, I'm sorry, Roger Marshall from Kansas. Senator Tim Kaine from Virginia is also a committee member, and he's notable because he has long COVID, and he's been quite vocal about his own experience as a patient for quite a while now. He very poignantly shared um, a bit about his experience during the Senate committee hearing. Um, He looked visibly moved by the testimony of patients with long COVID. And he has written um, a piece that I'm going to link in the show notes, along with a bunch of other links for this episode and the next, uh, written by him and two other senators who have long COVID. One is a former senator, but they uh, are 
you know, demanding that Congress act on uh, passing legislation and funding research for long COVID. Overall, this hearing was very validating and surprise. it was surprising to me how many senators had been directly or were directly impacted by long COVID, either by suffering from long COVID or prolonged symptoms after COVID infections, or having a, a loved one who is currently debilitated by long COVID. It seemed like everybody um, had a stake in the game and everyone was quite respectful and empathetic. So this is what the scene looked like. From my count, 12 senators attended, but not all at once. They would come and go, presumably between other meetings. They sat on an elevated podium or dais shaped like a semicircle with those cushy black judges chairs. So it's a lot of wood and leather vibes. And in front of them on the floor level are two long narrow tables or several long narrow tables equipped with microphones for the witnesses to sit and speak. Behind these witness tables are benches for people in the public who want to attend. Now, the hearing was held on January 18th. I see a media announcement for the hearing dated January 16th, just two days before the hearing. Another source informed me that it was... Uh, announced January 11th. I don't know how much actual lead up time there was, but long COVID patients or long COVID advocates really showed up and represented. The room was at capacity and there was an overflow area filled with attendees. There were many masks in the audience. There were many people wearing turquoise blue t-shirts representing an effort called Long COVID Moonshot. Um, I'm going to talk about Long COVID Moonshot and other players in the advocacy realm in the next episode. I'll dive a little bit deeper into Long COVID Moonshot and also into Long COVID Action Project. Two representatives from Long COVID Action Project protested the hearing uh, during the opening statements. It wasn't for very long, but they were holding very large um, banners and uh, many, uh, much of the coverage of the hearings um, has pictures of the protesters. They are, both of these groups are talking, asking for uh, commitments from the U.S. government to find a cure to long COVID, but Uh, They have different demands and a different um, approach. So if you want to learn a little bit more about them, listen to the next episode. Overall, the turnout was really good. It was visually effective. The hearing felt urgent. It was really awesome. Like I said, the hearing was really validating for those of us with long covid because many of us have been questioned or doubted. Time and again in this hearing, long COVID was discussed as fact. And the senators all demonstrated empathy for long COVID patients. 
If you need to hear some validating words, you might want to listen to Senator Sanders' opening comments. He started the hearing with an appropriate description of long COVID and said, to all of you with long COVID, we hear what you're experiencing. We haven't done enough. And hearing those words were really powerful, like it surprised me how moved I was, because many of us with long COVID are isolated, and because we're isolated, we fear we feel powerless, and we feel like we've been abandoned. Senator Sanders followed the hearing um, by writing an opinion piece that was published in USA Today. Um, I'll link that article in the show notes. But his article or his op-ed um, echoed a lot of what he said in his opening statements. He argued that long COVID is not only a medical challenge, it's an economic challenge and an ethical one. He said 16 million people in America have long COVID and 4 million are out of work because of it, with an annual cost in lost wages alone of $170 billion per year. He said we need to educate medical professionals to recognize, diagnose, and adequately treat this disease. He noted that many patients are dismissed or misdiagnosed, and many do not have access to care due to the shortage of physicians and other healthcare workers. In the written piece, he said, patients are forced to navigate a dysfunctional healthcare system that is too confusing and too expensive with no real answers. Morally, he said, this public health calamity that was COVID is an opportunity to reassess how foundational institutions benefit the public. In opening remarks, we also hear from Senator Bill Cassidy from Louisiana, who, as I said, is a physician. He said he's cared for patients with chronic fatigue syndrome in the past and other complex diseases that don't have biomarkers. And he acknowledged how devastating the disease can be and said, I will echo a lot of what Senator Sanders said, because the facts are just the facts. And that alone was refreshing. He pushed for more research and hopefully a cure. He noted that the committee had authorized over a billion dollars in long COVID research that was given to the Department of Health and Human Services. So this billion dollars he's referring to was actually 1.15 billion and established the Recover Initiative. The Recover Initiative was referred to several times in the hearing, so I'll talk about it a little bit now, and if you want to hear a deeper dive into Recover and some of the other sources of long COVID research funding in the U.S., you can listen to the next episode. So Recover stands for Researching COVID for Enhanced Recovery. It was a project established in February 2021 and was intended to study long COVID. That money was distributed pretty widely and subsidized research of different sizes and different topics, quite frankly. 
by now the money has been allocated and spent, but no effective clinical treatments have come out of it. Arguably because the funds were focused on observational studies and not enough funding was spent on treatment trials. Senator Cassidy made reference to another uh, source of funding, the Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness Act. This is called PAPA for short. We love our acronyms. Um, So he said that PAPA now includes funding for long COVID research. So briefly, PAPA was established in response to the 9-11 attacks to ensure the country's infrastructure could handle any future emergencies. It funds government agencies and private sector companies, including hospitals. What Senator Cassidy was referring to was the fact that PAPA was renewed by Congress in 2023 and now includes money earmarked for long COVID research. After the opening statements, patient testimony began. Now, before I summarize what each of the um, witnesses said, I want to commend all of them and thank all of them for their effort and their courage. They literally put their health on the line to testify to Congress on our behalf. And I know from following some of them on social media that they did have post-exertional malaise episodes afterwards. And I say they spoke on our behalf because whether we as long COVID patients know them or not, they did represent a cross-section of long COVID patients across the country and described on our behalf the urgency of this problem. So thank you all for doing what you did. The first testimony came from Ms. Angela Vasquez. She is, among other things, the president of a long COVID advocacy organization called Body Politic, which she said has closed um, due to lack of funds. She is also a policy director for a California-based advocacy group focused on improving equity in children's health care. From her bio, she has a fair amount of experience in advocacy, and her presentation reflected that. She was cool, calm, collected, and at the same time described how her life has been devastated by long COVID. She said before she got sick, she was an athlete. She contracted a mild case of COVID in 2020, and then her long COVID symptoms started. They included blood clots weakness, and severe allergic reactions. She said her lab work clearly demonstrated that something was wrong, but she was dismissed as having anxiety. She said she was forced to fend for herself in the first year because she didn't fit the demographic of what the high-risk group was believed to be. She noted that racial health disparity makes people of color at higher risk for developing long COVID and argued that historic health disparities are affecting access to care for long COVID patients. Age, ethnicity, income, and location were factors brought up several times in the hearing and identified 
as factors that influence access to healthcare. They were also linked to delayed diagnosis and delayed treatment. Ms. Vasquez brought up another topic that was discussed throughout the hearing, and that is the topic of the limitations of the U.S. health insurance system. She noted the challenges of navigating Medicaid and how patients with Medicaid are often at risk of losing insurance coverage simply because of bureaucratic requirements that change and policies that change and may not be communicated to the patient. Additionally, she pointed out that sometimes we as patients are too ill to understand or fill out all the forms needed by insurance. Currently, Ms. Vasquez suffers with post-exertional malaise, brain fog, and palpitations. She said she paces. She's able to work in a position that affords her appropriate accommodations, but she can't do much else. I don't socialize, she says. I don't enjoy my old hobbies, and I really don't leave my home. She brought up the historical and present struggles of patients with myalgic encephalomyelitis and chronic Lyme, connecting their experience to ours, and used HIV as an example of a medical crisis in our country that was successfully navigated once we understood that it required urgent and concerted effort from the government. In her closing remarks, she referred to long long COVID moonshot. Um, And the next witness was Ms. Rachel Beale from Southampton, Virginia. Ms. Beale worked as a human resources director until she became disabled with long COVID nearly three years ago. She spoke on the tremendous challenges of maintaining work and navigating social security disability. She had a really powerful testimony that resonated with me. Um, Because she, like me, was a working mother to two children and, like me, has been unable to work or function well since falling ill with COVID. After her fatigue and pain symptoms started, her doctor recommended she take off work for at least two weeks. A few months later, when her symptoms didn't resolve, her doctor diagnosed her with long COVID. That was in 2021. Like many of us, she was very worried about losing her income and her job, and although she tried, she couldn't tolerate even part-time work. She transitioned to long-term disability and ultimately lost her job. She said she wakes up every day tired, nauseous, and dizzy. She's fatigued and has cognitive impairment. She gets depressed. She was diagnosed with fibromyalgia as well, and her pain is very difficult to manage. She told the senators that even though she has insurance, her medical bills are adding up and taking a toll. Currently, Ms. Beale says she plans everything around her symptoms. When she talked about her kids and how they've become accustomed to, being, to her being sick, um, I could really relate to that. It's very discouraging you know, the transition of that your family has when you acutely get sick is one thing. It's a challenge to deal with, but it's almost, there's a different type of sadness that comes with your kids not questioning it anymore. 
She said if a special event's coming up, like a birthday, she has to plan well in advance to optimize her chance of being able to participate. And she knows she's going to crash afterwards, sometimes for weeks. We've gotten used to this lifestyle, she said. This might be as healthy as I get. She urged the senators for more research into long COVID, although she's currently worried that she may never recover because she's been ill for so long. Ms. Nicole Heim, also from Virginia, spoke next, and she represented her 16-year-old daughter who has long COVID. She also had really powerful testimony, and I can just tell she has been a tireless advocate for her daughter. So Ms. Heim's daughter contracted COVID at the age of 14, and a month later required emergent hospitalization for hypoxia, shortness of breath, and a significantly elevated heart rate. She also had what sounded like frightening muscle cramps. Currently, her daughter suffers from debilitating fatigue, nausea, pain, and also depression. Her daughter was able to access care at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C., which has a long COVID clinic. She's currently enrolled in an observational trial there as well. Ms. Heim's daughter has required a slew of specialists to figure out treatments to her symptoms, and as a Medicaid patient, her family had to jump through many insurance hoops to get the care she so desperately needed. Ms. Heim poignantly said at one point, long COVID has stripped away my daughter's life. She shared that her daughter has had episodes of suicidal ideation and said, we rarely discuss the mental health impact long COVID has and argued that it takes a much greater toll on a child because activities that are so foundational to children, like school, sports, and friendships, can't be accessed at critical points in their life. Ms. Heim had specific requests of the committee. One, to develop appropriate medical screenings for long COVID. Two, to increase awareness of pediatric long COVID. Three, to allow access to cross-state telehealth care. She encouraged the committee to meet with hospitals offering care to get firsthand exposure to the healthcare system for long COVID. And four was not the last. She had the fifth recommendation um, to educate parents about long COVID so that they could get their kids' care in a timely fashion. After the patient testimony, the senators took turns asking the witnesses questions. Some were clarifying questions. Some questions included commentary. Um, Sometimes the senators would toot their own horn or take digs at different parts of the government or various laws. Um, Most of the questions were frankly a bit of both. I'm going to discuss what I think were the most notable points of the question and answer period. Topics that were brought up in question and answer section were conversations regarding health disparities among different communities in the United States. Not surprisingly, gender, race, and income um, all contribute to vulnerability that patients have in accessing care. The challenges women face were addressed. Um, Women are more often 
minimized and their symptoms more often believed to be caused by anxiety or pandemic stress. Senator Tim Kaine, during one of the questions, talked about his experience with long COVID. Uh, Another senator, Senator Young, who's not on the committee, his experience suffering from long COVID, and a former senator, Senator Senator Inhofe, um, his struggle with long COVID. All three of these people, he said, are white men with status. And he said, we were not questioned. Our symptoms were not questioned. And we know that we are that that's not the case for women oftentimes. And so the three of them wrote an opinion piece urging Congress to act on long COVID and Senators Kane and Young co-sponsored a bill advocating for long COVID research a while back. I will link both of those in the show notes. So other health disparities, uh, one big issue is transportation, you know, it is difficult to access long COVID clinics. There, it is difficult to um, travel. It is a significant undertaking. And one of the witnesses said, you know, my time is probably better spent resting than it is traveling sometimes, but often I have no other choice. The situation is worse for those who live in rural settings and have very limited access to care and must travel very long distances. The Senator Murkowski from Alaska in particular was talking about, you know, we can't, not everyone can afford a plane ride every time they need to access care. So conversations around telemedicine and the importance of telemedicine, both in patient care and in physician education was talked about. There was a conversation around insurance, both private insurance and Medicaid. There was also a conversation around Social Security disability. In terms of insurance, uh, out-of-pocket costs can be tremendous, even if you are insured. Things like mental health care and massage therapies, both of which are effective at controlling pain, um, of course, stress and anxiety, and learning coping mechanisms are often either not covered at all by insurance, but or practically speaking, not available because it is difficult to find a mental health therapist who will take insurance, has openings, and regular availability. There is also a tremendous amount of paperwork involved in prior authorizations and navigating insurance. Many things like tests and treatments are denied by insurance companies, which one Um, witness called demoralizing and navigating these denials is time consuming for patients who oftentimes don't have cognitive energy to undertake these tasks. And it is demanding on doctor's time and the staff of clinics. They are spending valuable time on prior authorization paperwork when their time would be better spent in direct patient care. Social security disability insurance is also difficult to navigate. Um, Ms. Beal talked about her experience navigating SSDI and informed the Congress that SSDI doesn't tell you why you've been denied. It doesn't tell you if it's because 
of a medical diagnosis that they don't agree with, or if one of your papers is missing a signature. So every time you reapply, you're starting this cumbersome procedure from scratch without any guidance as to why the first um, or the last effort failed. One of the senators asked about how to streamline this process and also mitigate fraud. And Ms. Vasquez rightfully said that she believes that the risk of fraud is vastly overestimated. And I agree with that. I think the risk of fraud and I think the risk of malingering Uh, which is when patients lie about their symptoms for attention, is vastly overestimated. This is, she pointed out, a very difficult process and time-consuming that requires a lot of paperwork from other people. And, And so it is not likely that people are committing fraud. Most people who are applying for Social Security disability have a good reason for it. And then, you know, in many ways we've touched on, but I want to focus a little bit more on mental health. Our mental health is at risk when and whenever you have a chronic illness. And Ms. Vasquez pointed out that she had a pre-existing diagnosis of depression, which she believes might have kind of encouraged her her healthcare team to attribute her symptoms to depression. Additionally, she pointed out that long COVID is an inflammatory process, that there is neuroinflammation involved, and that when your brain is inflamed, it is linked to mood disorders. So she said, if my depression is caused by long COVID, my depression will be treated when you treat long COVID. And I thought that was a great point. Ms. Heim talked about her daughter's struggles with mental health, both in her testimony and in answering questions. And she mentioned that at some points, her daughter thinks to herself, you know what, this is in my head, I have to just push through. And she pointed out that this is not a disease that you can push through. Actually, the more effort you make, If it is misguided effort or just brute force, the more you are likely to be put back in your recovery. The last thing I'll bring attention to in the patient testimonies and question and answer period was the encouragement from the patients to involve patients in research and treatment. Ms. Heim multiple times said that she, as she learns what works and does not work for her daughter, she tries to educate every subsequent physician she meets and then encourages that physician, she said, to tell everyone you know. Ms. Vasquez also pointed out that patients know oftentimes a lot more than their physician does because they have they are living the experience and also because they have had to they have by necessity become experts at researching and they have kept up to date with research as papers come out because this is our top priority so she said from both of those angles 
it is important to and valuable for patients to be involved in um, these research proje- research projects and research efforts. So that was the first two thirds of the hearing. I want to once again applaud the patients uh, in testifying and traveling. Uh, I think they did a fantastic job. After the patient testimonials and questions, the panelists switched, and now we have four what Senator Sanders called experts. So four physicians slash scientists who are involved in long COVID research and caring for long COVID patients. They had the same format where each of them read a testimonial and then answered questions posed by the senators. This part of the question and answer period was a little more assertive, I'll say, than the senators were with the patients. Uh, There was a little bit more grandstanding and a little bit more pushback um, from the senators, but I think the the experts dealt with it, dealt with each instance very well and uh, did not not allow, from what I saw, the politicians to put words in their mouths. So well done to all of these. The first expert to speak, Dr. Michelle Harkins is a pulmonary critical care medicine physician based in New Mexico, and she is a lead investigator for several clinical trials involving long COVID. She was involved in a project called Project ECHO, and this was, from what I can tell, a virtual network to connect physicians caring for patients with acute COVID, and I believe these was primarily critical care physicians working in the ICU with very sick patients so that uh, information on treatment protocols could be disseminated rapidly. Because if you remember, or maybe you are or are not aware, during um, the acute COVID crisis, we as physicians were connecting with each other by phone and online to learn what other people were doing um, successfully in treating acutely ill COVID patients. Project ECHO has since expanded and primary care physicians are now involved and Project ECHO is being used to disseminate information to primary care physicians on how to diagnose and treat some symptoms of long COVID. She had several recommendations to the Senate, including continuing funding for long COVID in general to include a broad set of patients in clinical trials, to support multidisciplinary clinics. This is a type of clinic where you enter one building and you see specialists on the same day Um, from different specialties. There are limitations currently on this kind of model, which is one that we as long COVID patients would really benefit from. One of the limitations is insurance reimbursement. It sounds like it is currently difficult to get reimbursement when one patient sees more than one physician in one clinic on the same day. She also argued that we need to prevent recurrent COVID infections. We need to prevent 
the occurrence of acute COVID infections. I think this was vital, and this was a message that was echoed by at least one of the other experts and is, you know, as we know, quite important. She suggested that by expanding an investment in long COVID, in funding multidisciplinary clinics, in expanding investment in telehealth, we could be building an infrastructure that could be useful for whatever the next pandemic is. And the next expert echoed a lot of this. The next expert was Dr. Ziad Al-Ali, a physician scientist at the University of Washington in St. Louis. He has been involved in long COVID research for quite some time. Um, He was one of the physicians who presented at UCSF Ground Rounds. Again, that's episode six. So you can listen to more details about his research there. But he informed and educated the senators that long COVID is a multi-systemic disorder that can affect people across their lifespan, so at any age and any demographic group. He said the burden of this disease is on par with the burden of disease of heart disease and cancer. Burden of disease or burden of disability is a way to measure the cost of having this disease or disability. The cost to you as an individual who has the disease and the cost to the society in which you live. It reflects not only economic losses, but impacts on um, society, politics, the environment. So it what Dr. Alali said was pretty powerful, that the burden of disease that long COVID exerts is on par with that of heart disease and cancer. He pointed out again that you can get long COVID after any COVID infection. Because you survived one COVID infection without developing long COVID does not mean that you are spared from developing long COVID after a subsequent infection. And because he said the burden of disease is high and the recovery rates are low and essentially everyone is vulnerable, preventing long COVID is crucial and preventing long COVID is best done by preventing COVID infection. He argued for variant-proof vaccines and air ventilation systems. Later in the question and answer period, he talked about how buildings, building codes change to accommodate the risk of earthquake, and likewise, our building codes should invest in and reflect the dangers of Um, airborne pathogens. He also pointed out that vaccine side effects are real. He said currently there are zero approved treatments for long COVID, but that it is not beyond the prowess of America to solve this problem. He said the research effort must match the urgency and scale of the problem, which requires a coordinated approach. 
Unfortunately, both his and the next expert's microphones would go in and out. So we missed some of his points, but Dr. Al Ali was gave a passionate testimonial and um, it was very effective. Dr. Sharice Madlock-Brown is a PhD in informatics at the University of Iowa School of Nursing. She is an expert in informatics and therefore analyzing data and using machine learning to do so. She also said that long COVID is severely underdiagnosed and pointed to demographic disparities in long COVID diagnosis. It sounds like her area of expertise has been in analyzing um, data to look for trends. And one of the trends that she communicated was that patients who were female, white, non-Hispanic, and who lived in affluent areas were more likely to get a long COVID diagnosis than patients in other groups. She recommended that we build on existing data from the research on myalgic encephalomyelitis. She also called on long COVID moonshot. She recommended more clinical trials to identify phenotypes of long COVID patients. And we talked a little bit about this in Dr. Akiko Iwasaki's presentation at UCSF Ground Rounds. She wants an improvement in diagnosis and treatment accessibility. She thinks underserved communities should have more funding. And she talked about ways to possibly organize and link data from different systems. And the last expert was Dr. Tiffany Walker. She is an internal medicine physician at Emory University in Atlanta, uh, specifically Grady Hospital. And she is the principal investigator for uh, a recover-funded trial uh, at her hospital. She sounds like she had a quite a bit of experience with community health and talked about the impact that long COVID has on patients' ability to work and patients' abilities to function normally. She also noted similarities between long COVID and myalgic encephalomyelitis and also pointed out that economically disadvantaged populations are at higher risk for complications associated with long COVID. She said a lack of coordination in care is amplified in these underserved communities She pointed out that the more we understand about long COVID from research, the better physicians are going to be able to guide testing. And if a patient doesn't have to undergo every test in the world, but instead has a focused set of tests that are backed by research, this will attenuate costs to the patients and attenuate the cost to the medical system. She critiqued the recoverer funding and specifically the way the funds were earmarked, the specific rules that limited how the funds were distributed. That was, I don't want to put words in her mouth, but that's what I got from it. So she recommended expanding recover funding 
expanding drug trials using repurposed drugs. So these are existing drugs that are being used for off-label purposes. She also thanked the Senate for the recent ARC funding. ARC stands for AHRQ, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. In 2023, uh, the Congress uh, earmarked. There was a discussion about centralizing care in multidisciplinary clinics and also decentralizing care. So centralized care right now is multidisciplinary clinics that patients travel to and get to see multiple specialists at the same time, and those specialists can importantly collaborate and help develop a plan for the patient. Right now, that seems to be really helpful because now there is a significant burden on patients and their families to travel long distances in order to seek care. A need to decentralize, not depend on these multidisciplinary clinics that are few and far between. And instead, things like Project ECHO, which Dr. Harkins is involved with, can be used to disseminate information to primary care providers who can more easily diagnose and at least somewhat start treating patients to get some alleviation of symptoms. There is a discussion here about, just like there was in the patient section, um, about the connection between long COVID and other infection-associated diseases like ME-CFS and Lyme disease. And I want to point out here, and we'll talk about it more in the next episode, that not everyone in the long COVID community agrees that we should be sort of combining these processes and studying them together. We'll talk more about that, why that is in the next episode. But here at this hearing, the what arguments I heard were supporting using research that has already been done on MECFS and building on that for long COVID patients because the underlying belief is that something in, there is something in common among all of these infection-associated diseases. There was a brief discussion on the role of AI and machine learning in understanding the data uh, that we have collected on long COVID patients. And Dr. Madlock Brown spoke to this and said that there is a role for AI to help us sift through all of this information, but that again, there we need more funding to adequately utilize AI specifically for the what I think is the electronic health systems that we have. And again, find a way for systems that don't talk to each other to communicate a little more easily. Dr. Madlock Brown also referred to another organization called Patient-Led Collaborative. And just like the patients did, talked about crowdsourcing and information from patients and also collaborating. She pointed out pretty powerfully that these four panelists have 
never met before, much less collaborated. And yet they've all been identified by the U.S. government as experts in long COVID. And she hopes that this will start a collaboration. And I certainly want that as well. Senator Hickenlooper then brought the hearing to a close. He took over from Senator Sanders, who said he had to go to another meeting. He said that was uh, emergently scheduled. And in his closing remarks, he extended additional empathy and sympathy to patients with long COVID and recognized and acknowledged that the effort that it took for everybody to come and be in that room, the effort that it took to speak, and the effort that it's going to take to recover. And he adjourned the session by saying, on behalf of the United States, we thank you. So all in all, I think this hearing was very powerful. It was very encouraging but we're going to have to see what comes from it. I think this is a good start, but we in the U.S. need to keep our representatives' feet to the fire, as it were, and make sure they follow up on a lot of the promises and enthusiasm that they made and had during this hearing. This also inspired me to learn more about different existing long COVID advocacy groups who may be doing this work already, however small or grassroots. If you are interested in that as well, listen for the next episode where I discuss some of the players that I have noticed in the long COVID advocacy space. As we wind down, I want to thank you. If you are still listening, there was a lot in this episode. It took me a bit of effort to sift through it all and do some of the background contextualizing. I hope it was helpful for you. Send me some feedback. My email is longcovidmd at gmail.com. Tell me what you thought of the hearing. If you are one of the people who testified or were in the audience and want to offer more context or a follow-up or a clarification, send me ideas or questions you want me to answer on the podcast or just send a note to say hello and tell me your story. You can also find me on X at Dr. underscore Zeest. That's D-O-C-T-O-R underscore Z-E-E-S-T. I want to thank you for listening to the Long COVID MD podcast. I'm Dr. Zeest Khan. And until next time, bye for now.